Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a conversation with Dr. Matt Lunning, an oncologist specializing in lymphoid malignancies. Matt also happens to be my neighbor and friend. I met Matt on an evening about five years ago that he would likely say was one of his lowest points. Since then, I have learned about why that situation occurred, and that understanding has given me a deep perspective about our humanity and has also given me insight into who my friend is. It also makes me reflect on the fact that we can't really know what a person is going through until we understand the full story. And it is through this podcast that I hope to shed some of light on these stories. While I plan on keeping the details of that initial encounter five years ago and the background leading up to it between my friend and me, I can assure you that this understanding makes me a better person. Our discussion today, I hope, can provide insights we can learn from other clinicians who are dealing more frequently with life and death as human beings. Please enjoy our conversation. And as always, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you find the information valuable, share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, support those who support us. Today's show is sponsored by iCode Education. At iCode Education, we create and host high-quality, relevant, COPE-approved online optometric CE. We offer practice management courses from billing and coding, fee assessment, and chart auditing to clinical courses that focus on topics ranging from the anterior segment to the posterior segment to myopia control and neurological disease. Additionally, we partner with associations to help them provide their members and non-members with online continuing education at their own pace, on their own schedule. This allows our associations to generate non-dues revenue and provide a valuable service for their members who are allowed to obtain hours from distance learning entities. Check us out at iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. One more time, E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. So we just had a fun weekend, Matt, of skiing with with the kids, with the boys. And um, I'm really happy and and glad that you asked us to come along. It's been a blast. Yeah, no, it was a great idea and glad that it worked out timing-wise. So when you and I had kind of quite a few conversations on our nine-plus-hour <laughs> drive to, uh, to Breckenridge, Colorado, and um, one of the things that I thought there were a couple of things that we didn't hit on that I, I wanted to kind of save for this conversation. And then maybe if we have time, we can go back to some of the other things. I think the first thing is when you and I first met, I guess my first memory of you is probably not the memory that you want to to share with everybody. But one of the things I gather from that memory is how um, how under pressure you were as an oncologist, uh, and how you have to kind of manage that, those pressures. And so I think a lot of a lot of times our listener listeners have really, especially when they're first out into practice, they have these kind of big issues that are that they're dealing with. Um, and so you've got to deal with life and death, death issues on a daily basis. So I think that had to be five, six, seven years ago um, when we we kind of first met, um, and you were dealing with a big one. So can you kind of describe first of all when you were first into practice? How did you manage the the idea of really caring for your patients and then having to really grasp the fact that you're going to lose them, um, and then uh, and then what have, what has evolved in, in your ability to kind of understand those things and deal with them as time has gone on? 
Yeah, so I think it you know goes back all the way to medical school when you first get an idea of what you want to be and what you want to do for your career. Um, you know, then going into residency where you kind of get the first opportunity to take care of patients one on one and start to develop more of a skill set and and, and uh, you know the, the qualities uh, that you want to uh, put forth uh, for your patients. Um, I had an experience in, in residency, which wasn't too pleasant, um, in that, uh, I had, you know, what I would call an, uh, an interaction that didn't go the way that I wanted it to, um, and felt that I was put in a threatening uh, situation. Can you Um, describe that a little bit more? Can you delve deeper into it without any HIPAA violations? Yeah. So it was a situation where, you know, you had to make a decision on whether or not you were going to do something or not do something. And it wasn't what um, they wanted. And, you know, we get put in those situations all the time where, um, you know, people have um, thoughts on what they uh, think is the right answer. And, you know, based upon your medical experience and your medical knowledge, that may not be what you think is the answer. And how do you come to, you know, the ability to either um, come to a consensus on what's the best course of action or that you're not going to agree on the next steps and how do you part ways, you know, in a respectful uh, um, and, the, you know, in some ways, a, you know, the ability to continue the patient-physician um, relationship. Um, and if that breaks down, then, you know, that's that's a big deal. And I think we see a lot of that uh, potentially happening, you know, across, uh, the country where, you know, either, um, you know, the physicians, um, may not think that the patients are doing the things that they want them to do or, or expecting them to do, um, or that the, the patients think that there's an alternative motive uh, to what the physicians, um, you know, uh, think or, you know, or, or what they want them to do. And so there's a crossroads often in, in care uh, in that situation. And, you know, that, that, those experiences kind of mold uh, who you become uh, uh, as a physician. I can say that not only those experiences, but the experiences that you get to see um, those people who you call your mentors. You know, I, I've always said that, you know, there are people that I watch interact with patients that I'll take away from it saying that I don't know that I would handle it that, that way. Um, and then, you know, trying to uh, reflect on that experience, say, well, if I were leading that conversation or if I were, uh, um, you know, the, the attending in that case when I was in residency, this is how I may have tried to handle that situation. And then there are those uh, mentors um, who are the people that you are in the room. You know, I frequently chuckle to myself internally uh, when I say, you know, one-liners that are, you know, multiple different people, <laughs> of people who I, you know, ad- admire uh, um them and and their careers and you know how they interact with patients and in the end you know who i am is a blend of all of those people um, with my own you know sort of beliefs and my own um ability to synthesize the the data the information that that i've learned from textbooks from journal articles from from you know those who have come before uh those people for those those similar experiences Getting into fellowship, you know, uh, you had to deal with some, 
you know, life and death situations and residency, but, you know, choosing oncology um, for fellowship really, you know, galvanized kind of who I wanted to be um, from the experience standpoint, but it also brought a different perspective in regards to the ability to have, you know, interactions with, with people when they're the most vulnerable, when they're being told that they have cancer for the first time. I think that that's a, you know, a responsibility that there are very few careers, in my opinion, um, that, you know, people remember when, when that word is said to them, uh, those family members re remember when those words are sent to them. So, you know, I take it as a, a very much a responsibility. Uh, um, and I tell patients when I walk in the room, you know, I've done, I try to do my homework, you know, I don't come in blind. Uh, you know, I try to create a team, uh, that respects the time before you see the patient as much as the time spent with the patient and the, and the time spent after with them, because that's our responsibility. Um, and so all the effort, uh, that goes into the, the prior to the visit, uh, the first time you're meeting them, because first, you know, first impressions are incredibly important. And I think patients deserve, you know, your best effort before even walk in the room. Um, because you know that they're going to hear, you know, potentially one out of every five words. And that's why many times more than one brain in the room matters uh, to kind of, uh, kind of piece, piece it together, piece a story together. What, what I'm explaining to them that I understand about them, what they're helping me fill in the holes uh, that I can't glean from the past records or the path uh, reports or the radiology reports. And then really trying to lay out for them kind of what's their um, situation. You know, are we talking uh, a diagnosis that has curative intent? Um, or are we talking uh, about a diagnosis that's palliative intent? And, you know, I think that palliative, that word is you know, so taboo uh, in society these days that we don't, we don't talk about what that word truly means. Uh, there are many palliative situations uh, that are palliative that we don't call palliative, meaning that you know palliative situation is trying to get a person to live as long as they can um, with good quality of life with the, for that condition. You know, one could argue that hypertension, type two diabetes, you know, coronary artery disease, um, you know, the common things that we hear about day in and day out, um, those are those are palliative situations where you're trying to uh, treat that situation where you're trying not to make the patient. Uh, symptomatic from their diagnosis, um, but to not, uh, uh, but to trying to control it because you know that if you control it well, perhaps that they'll have, you know, a good quality of life. And if they don't control it, that they may have a poor or less, uh, less good outcome uh, over time. One of the things that I think about when I think about palliative care, I learned probably within my, I can't remember if this was in my training or in my first year of practice, but I had a patient that was, um, she came in, her husband was a physician, uh, and she was on in palliative care. I mean, there was no there was no treatment options that were going to cure her cancer. Um, but her, her intraocular pressures were in the mid forties. And when I tried to so I, I feel like I un, I mean at that point I understood palliative care, but I had never been involved in in actually the continuum of palliative care because we just don't see that. As a profession in general, we get to, even when patients have bad disease, our profession gets 
many opportunities to intervene that can be site vision saving. And rarely do we get to encounter conditions that are life threatening. Although we do, um, we're because we're at the front line, we can we can sort of have these conversations with patients that are uh, almost not artificially encouraging, but they're not they're not where you're walking in the room saying you got stage four, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's like oh we have this or we're going to inspect this and now we've got this result we're going to get you into somebody else's hands. Uh, worst cases that we've got you know most of the time worst cases vision threatening but when we catch things and identify them most of the things from a vision standpoint is are are manageable and so uh, so for her I recall I can't remember if she had a year or two or three years but the reality was the pressures of forty five you know they they specifically said. We do not want any treatments that are that are not related to palliative care. And so at that time, I, I don't know, in reflection, I think I probably treated her incorrectly in the sense that I treated, gave her a really low risk medication to reduce her pressure uh, in, inside of her eyes and lower her risk of vision loss over time, whether it's a year or two years or three years down the road. But... I, I kind of struggled with it after that. I still, you know, to this day, 10, 11 years later, I still think about her because I think, man, should I have done what I did? Uh, I don't think she lived much longer because I think probably lived six months, but I thought, well, what if she would have lived three months? What you're saying is that palliative care is, is that whole continuum. It might be just managing that patient who has lymphoma, managing their diabetes more intently as opposed to um, saying, well, you're going to die in however many months, we're not going to eat what you want to eat, right? So there's other, there's other things that go into palliative care that are not necessarily um, related to just the diagnosis that, that may not kill them in, in a year or 10 years, but actually improve their quality of life for that 6 to 12 months or whatever the time frame is. Right, I think that there's the conception that palliative care means hospice. And truly, you know, I, I personally believe that palliative care is a continuum and that if you have, you know, a, a palliative diagnosis, it doesn't mean that you forget about hypertension, doesn't mean that you forget about type 2 diabetes, it doesn't, you don't forget about glaucoma, you know, uh, because you call some, you know, having your vision and having as good a vision as you can means that you get to see your loved ones, you know, not just hear them. And I think that that does bring, you know, some aspect of quality of life. Uh, the communication, obviously, would be much better uh, in those situations. And, um, you know, from, from the standpoint of other chronic comorbidities and the palliative, you know, standpoint, um, you know, I think that, that it is important that, that even if a person is uh, and is on a palliative, you know, uh, course, um, that they still should, she, should see you know, physicians and, and uh, other practitioners that uh, may improve their quality of life because you don't, want, you don't want it to decline more rapidly because you're choosing not to do something unless the, the patient has made that decision. Um, how do you story. communicate How do you communicate that to the other providers? Like on the team, you know, as the, as the specialist oncologist and not just the general oncologist, but the, the specialist oncologist, how do you communicate that to the internal medicine physician or the the uh, family family practice physician or or any of the what's your role in that in communicating that don't ignore these other conditions when do you take control of those uh you know the management of those conditions versus kind of 
have those patients see their other other physicians for it. In, in, in many situations in oncology, when it is a palliative diagnosis, you are still treating them. Um, you're not, you know, unless the patient chooses no further therapy, you're still giving them, them treatments. But I will look for other medicines that may um, interact with the medicines that I want to give. Um, or a lot of times patients will want to take supplements um, or, or uh, you know, buy, buy supplements that they may um, or they think may improve their, their odds of survival. Where are they finding the ideas for that, for those supplements? Is it just Joe Rogan or? No, it may, be, it may be, uh, you know, what they saw on TV. It may be, you know, an advertisement in the, the local, you know, uh, some sort of a, you know, magazine or paper um or may it may come from you know a family member uh, asking them um you know and so it's in those situations supplements in my in my view you know if you're not on if you have an oncologic diagnosis and you're you know what i call active surveillance or watch and wait so you know that that the, this is lymphoma this sometimes does, does occur where patients are diagnosed with a, a slow-growing lymphoma and if it's otherwise if they're otherwise asymptomatic we may choose uh, to observe them until the, the lymphoma is actually causing problems and then we treat them. So I, I, you know, think at that standpoint, if a patient wants to try turmeric uh, as a, as an example, which has some data behind, behind it, that's, you know, uh, been looked at in, um, uh, at, you know, uh, institutions, um, or other, uh, or other supplements, um, you know, that's the time in my mind, you know, to try them. But when I'm going to use my my therapies, you know, I try to control as many variables as possible, and that's just my analytical mm -hmm. nature. You know, I want to know if their liver function tests are going to go up. It's probably because of my medicine, not because of X, Y, or Z medicines. And I'll look through the medication list for their hyperlipidemia or their hypertension or their type two diabetes to kind of see is there medicines that are going to you know interact. You don't want a person on a oral hypoglycemic if you're going to give a medication which is you know significantly. Um, you know, causes nausea and vomiting and the patient's not eating, you can actually cause a, you know, a bigger problem in that situation. So you, you do your best in, in those situations to not neglect their other comorbidities and not neglect, you know, the medicines that they're, that they're taking. Um, but you also want to, you know, when you're making that transition um, in either curative or palliative intent therapies where you're starting uh, therapies, at least in, in lymphoma and I think in many other onco oncologics, uh, specialties, you're really, you know, trying to uh, uh, um, be analytical, control the variables um, from that standpoint. Yeah, so I think, um, so I want to get back to, you know, I see sometimes, so the one of the ways that I manage my stress is to get out and work out in the morning. So a lot of times I, I see you, I'm getting done with my run, you're pulling out the trash, going over to the clinic. And, um, and so what are the ways that, uh, that you've learned over time to manage the stress that are that is involved with these you know with managing patients who are in these situations um you know i think i'm still a work in progress you know i i my wife would say i'm you know i'm, I'm far from perfect in this she can tell when i'm you know struggling with a a, a tough decision the next day you know i frequently will will sit there and try to get to sleep but try to figure out you know, what am I going to do tomorrow in clinic? And over time, you know, I've been able to let go more of that because more times than not, uh, um, I can try and plan out what's going, what I think is going to happen. 
And it's self-evident when you get in the room, you know, either the patient's made up their mind or the patient and the family has already decided or there's or there you had three options and the patient states, you know, or states or says something that takes away two of the three, you know, and so there's one one um, option that becomes just self-evident. Yeah. Uh, um, from a stress standpoint, I've, you know, I try to, I try to take care of myself, but I know in my thirties, I've really struggled with that. Um, and you know, I, I realize that, you know, it's kind of one of those self-reflections where it's, you know, um, am I, am, you know, as I leave my thirties, I'm going to try to be have a healthier forties than I did in my thirties. Uh, because it, I didn't, I didn't take care of myself. I let, uh, my profession consume me. Um, and how do you, how do you break out of a pattern when you feel consumed? Um, it's tough and I don't have the answers. I don't know that there are, you know, an answer, you know, a one answer for everybody in that situation, because I think, over time you learn who you are and you take yourself out of that situation completely. You're not going to be happy. So you have to whittle away and kind of in some ways trial and error, find, try to find an Avenue that brings, you know, uh, bring satisfaction. It doesn't always have to bring joy, yeah. but just bring satisfaction of accomplishment outside of work. Um, or, or, you know, um, and, and I've tried to do that because my satisfactions, you know, uh, mostly pertain to work, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether or not it was getting invited to speak at, you know, uh, a conference that you really wanted to speak at or, um, standing at the podium, you know, and presenting the, the, the latest, you know, breakthrough in, in, in oncology and in lymphoma. I mean, those are aspirations that I had in my late, my late twenties and my early thirties, but how do those aspirations then, you know, as you move forward into your career, how do they consume you? And if you've had them, then how do you, and then you're kind of like, do you want to maintain them? Do you want to, how do you grow them um, without, without, you know, causing, you know, your mind is, uh, you know, is important, but you're, but without a, without a body, your mind is very hard to, uh, you know, uh, articulate and be where you want to be. I mean, um, and, you know, I think that that's, that's part of the process that I'm struggling with right now. Um, I would say that when I watch you, I think, you know, from a standpoint of, you know, as we were talking on the way up about different books that we've, that we've liked and the fact that you're reading books that are, that you're intentionally reading books that are relevant to your parenting, you know, your sons and your daughters. Um, you know, I think that's refreshing. I think that, I think in general, as busy as you are, I think you still do a good job and I'm not trying to just blow sunshine, right? I'm just saying that <laughs> in general, as I've observed, um, you know, you do a good job and Janet does a really good job of, of kind of overseeing uh, the family as well. And, and, and I'll tell you, I don't know if you know this, but when I watch, um, when I've watched physicians in general, I, I think that there's a lot of cases I, I see. Uh, I mean, I had an experience recently and I, holy cow. I mean, I couldn't believe how, ill-equipped these two professionals were to manage their family. And I'm not saying that they like they were doing a bad job actually managing their family, but some of the situations that were, uh, that I saw, I was just like, I can't believe 
that both of you are just in this position where either you're so financially strapped or you're just so focused, hyper-focused on your, on your profession that you're going to let this stuff happen uh, with your family. And, I, and so I guess um, I don't know that I know many people um, and, you know, I know a lot of um, eye surgeons. I know a lot of really high performing, you know, optometrists as well. They're just doing a bunch of stuff. And, you know, I, I think that when you get to the point of being sort of that, um, that kind of end point for a lot of patients, um, it's really challenging to, to be in a situation where you can kind of manage your family well. And so I think you're doing a good job. Yeah, I, you know. Like Does my, faith come into that? My faith has grown over time. I think, you know, um, I pray often. I don't always pray in church. You know, um, the church within you and all around you concepts. Uh, you know, I, I think about it as I'm driving, you know, situations and praying for families and for patients, you know, on the way to work or, uh, you know, in the elevator or while waiting for the elevator, um, from those, from those standpoints and, you know, or thinking about it, you know, when you're sitting down at dinner, you know, or kissing your kids when they go to bed tonight, because you get to be there, you know, um, when they go to bed and that's a blessing. Um, you know, I also think about how do you not bring it home? You know, and I, I fail at that and I fail often, uh, at, with that I you know and and my wife will call me out on it you know like you're not there like you're at home now uh, um, and how does she, she do that what does she say specifically oh she's very blunt yeah. I mean she she can read me I mean the the nonverbals, the the you know usually the first thing that when it comes home you know how engaged am I am I am I am I there or am I you know am I still at work yeah and, you know, that's, that's something that I've tried to work on is the be here now, uh, concept, you know, that's part of, you know, we've been going through some culture changes, you know, cultural training, you know, at, at work and something that I thought you know, I've really taken away from is, is, is that concept is, you know, your kids want you to be there, you know, at the ages, not our kids are getting at, it's, um, more about being present than, yeah. than what you're saying, you know, the, the blessings are is when they ask you for help, right? And that's the golden opportunities. And if you're if you're not present, then they're just gonna bypass you, yeah. and they won't ask you. And you and you you know often you could be concerned of who they then are asking if it's not you. Um, and so while I'm not always you know hourly wise uh, um, around as much as I want to be. When I am, I try to value that time, and I think that that's something that we we talked about is, you know, value, um, and you know, and the time spent, and 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 where you're at, and the interactions that you can have, and the discussions you can have, you know. So I've really focused on less about am I, you know, this is a time that I'm home, and this is a time that I'm at work, mm -hmm. but when I'm at work, the time is valued, and when I'm at home, I try to value that time, uh, um, and I think that's been you know, uh, really quite, um, you know, kind of trying to lead me in, an, in a new direction, you know, as I say, is becoming better in 40 than, uh, um, than have you read the book better next year? 
I have you not. You should. You should. It's about um, my dad. So it was. I read it when I was 29, so 38 now. And um, my dad wrote read it, and the idea is that you know, a lot of us think that we have to have this slow decline in adulthood. You know, 40, uh, and just 40 to 80 is just going to be this precipitous decline. And uh, this guy and his physician wrote it, and basically, you know, the reality is is that you could, you know, you could get I could get brain cancer, and, and I'm dead in a month, right? That could happen. God, God willing, it will not happen, but it could. You can't protect against that. But what you can protect against is this idea that you don't have to have every year be worse and worse and worse. And so basically what they showed is like, you know, 80 years old, you could have this sort of plateau from 40 to 80, where physically, mentally, if you take care of yourself, you know, you, you, you're going to be on this plateau and then, yeah, maybe five years, boom, right? Or maybe it's till 90 or maybe 85 and then boom for five years, whatever it is. But it doesn't have to be a very uh, gradual decline. It's going to be a quick decline. And, um, and so when I read that, I thought, yeah, okay, I could be better next year. Um, I'm not sure I've held true to that every year, but largely I think I have. And um, it's a book you should read or at least download on Audible. Um, because it, because the reality is, is that like, you know, we don't have to like what, it, what it's really forced me to think about is like, okay, how can I, you know, physically and mentally perform better? Just kind of keeps keeping me thinking, okay, well, what could I do this year that was better than the year before, which is sort of, you know, telling when it's now 2020, right? Where it's our new mm -hmm. year, all the resolutions, all those other things, but it let me keep it in the back of my mind that I don't have to always be. Like I, I can be a 38 year old man and I can play soccer with my kids like I'm 18. And, you know, maybe I'm a little sore, but you know, I, I, I can still do it. And uh, I, I want to be able to do that when I'm 48 and 58. And, you know, as many kids as I have, I'm going to have to, right. I'm going to have to do it when I'm that old. Yeah. I think, I think it's important to, you know, as you think about that is you don't have to pick a part that's new. Right, you can try to prove upon something that you already have established. I think that's something that I could, could see myself falling into is that because I'm, you know, here, I I want to find something that I'm not doing mm. and and make it something that I'm, you know, into my life. Mm -hmm. Whereas probably I'd be more successful if I just took something that I'm already doing yeah. and tried to imp improve that. And I, you know, yeah, think about tennis. So like. Like, uh, you know, Tom Worthington a couple of years ago asked me to play soccer with him. You know, old we call it old man soccer. And the reality is we're playing against guys that played college soccer. And, you know, we're playing like futsal or soccer. The thing I know in the back of my mind is that, like, I'm not a great soccer. I'm average at best. But if I'm well conditioned, I can play. Like, that can overcome so much technical at that level. You know, you know technical deficiencies that I have that I can overcome the fact that, that I'm playing guys that are 20 years younger than I am. Um, and, and so like, it's almost a challenge. I'm like, yeah, all right, I'm ready. You know, and I'm, you know, these guys are huffing and puffing hands on their hips, you know, and, and I'm, and I'll just push them, push them, push them. And so like, I think about like with tennis with you, it's like, oh, you could, you know, you could get in that mentality. Right. Yeah, so no, it's, it's fun. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. Thinking about that is as I started to try to pick up, pick up the game again, Knowing that you're never going to be as, you know, for me, I know I'm never going to be as good as I was when I was 
you know, 21. Yeah. But I know I can probably get one or two steps faster, you know, and, you know, and if you get one to two steps faster, that means you get maybe one to two more shots, you know, in a rally (laughs) over. And that may be all it takes to, you know, uh, make you feel better about, you know, why you're, why you're out there, uh, uh, doing it. Even, even if the, the end, the end score is still the same. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I think that that's, uh, you know, next year yep, to try to go. be better. There you go. So let me ask you, uh, is it, I'm going to change course a little bit because when I was, so when I was an undergrad, I wasn't sure if I was going to go to optometry school or medical school. And so I, um, I was preparing for the MCAT and I took a Kaplan course. And one of the things, you know, since we don't have, um, osteopathic schools in Nebraska, uh, I, I had never encountered, honestly, um, probably until I went to optometry school in Oklahoma, an osteopath. Uh, so I recall the Kaplan instructor saying this, which I had no perspective of at the time, but now like in hindsight, um, I thought, wow, what a, you know, what an arrogant statement. But, but what they said was nobody goes to osteopathic school unless they can't get into to allopathic school. I thought, what a, you know, like I, at the time I didn't have any idea. I was like, okay, whatever. But, you know, after encountering a lot of osteopaths in Oklahoma when I was in school, I actually saw that most of them seem to care much more for their patients than any allopaths that I had ever seen. So I guess the question I have is that I'm sort of interested in is, did you ever, did you ever feel like, um, like that was pushed on you as to go to allopathic medicine? Or if you didn't, what um, what sort of biases, if any, did you see during your training or, you know, your residency selection or your fellowship selection? Or has that been so far gone now that it's not an issue? I can't I can't speak to today as much as I could, you know, when I'm when I was going uh, through it or when I was thinking about, you know, get going to medical school. Mm-hmm. Um I had a different path because I was very research minded uh, in my undergraduate. You know, I knew that I wanted to do oncology. I knew that I wanted to do some form of research. Um, it was just how was I going to get there? And I wasn't the smartest in my class. I didn't have the the greatest of GPAs. I didn't, you know, score the best on my M, my MCAT. Um, so I knew that, you know, I knew where my strengths were. My strengths were hard work and that I had a passion you know, for a topic. And, you know, I was, um, eager to do things that, you know, um, others may not, may not have done. And so, um, you know, and sometimes serendipity falls in your lap. Uh, and you know, some of the experiences that I had padded, not maybe padded, it's the wrong word, but helped my, uh, CV, um, to when somebody picked it up goes, Oh, well, this is interesting, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't what made you through the first um, checkpointed in, you know, MD PhD school or an MD school. And, you know, coming from the state that I came from, um, you know, they took, you know, um, out of state kids more than other states, uh, may have. And so I knew that I was an average applicant, uh, but I really wanted to, you know, consider doing an MD PhD program. Um, and when I saw the scores and I, you know, didn't get an interview, I kind of had to make a, make a choice. Do I go back and try and, 
you know, go in the lab and, you know, um, when I knew that I probably wasn't going to be a, you know, PA, by that time I had kind of thought that I wanted to do MD, PhD, but I really thought, well, do I want to take that extra four years and do, do my PhD? And I, you know, at the end decided against it and applied to the, the DO school. Um, and, you know, you have to learn about what it, what it means uh, to go to, to a DO school, you know, all, back, all the way back to AT still and, you know, what, uh, what he brought and, uh, um, to the school. And, Do they and, still have that kind of history that they teach you? I mean, it was present, it was present there. Um, and to watch, you know, kind of how the osteopathic schools have, um, you know, grown in, in, I think in areas in states of need, uh, you know, from, from that standpoint, I think the, the ability to, get hands-on and I think this is medicine is changing evolving very quickly to have you know hands-on things whether or not it was hands-on from you know going to the anatomy lab and then going directly you know into our manipulation courses where we're you know we were palpating the sacrum the same time that we're dissecting the sacrum mm -hmm. you know I think has some some relevance in the the um, the thought that it's not, you know, if it's an appropriate situation to touch the patient, then touch the patient, yeah. right? It's as part of the physical exam. Or if it's part of, you know, just showing a sense of caring, yeah. you know, to to put your hand on the shoulder of your yeah, patient. Yeah, totally. To, you know, and, and in my clinic, hugging the patient, uh, if the patient offers a hug, I give him a hug, yep. you know, and, you know, I think that, you know, there is science behind that being hugs actually pretty good for yep. you too. Yep. If you're the recipient of the hug or if you're giving the hug, there's still some, some, you know, good, you know, chemicals that are, that are secreted from that, that can, that may help your day. Uh, also, and, and, you know, some days that's all I want is a hug yeah. at the, at the end, at the end of the day. Uh, um, you know, when you come home or, or before you're leaving from work. Um, and so, I think that that uh, um, you know that concept was very early on in this in the schooling. From the standpoint of you know, it was going to be an uphill battle. Did they tell you you're you're not as you're you know you're not going to be as competitive going to residency? I mean, if you work hard, you test. You know, I guess you in some ways you have to test well. Yeah. Uh, um, but if you continue to grow who you are as a person, you know. In some way, we have to figure out how to take a thousand applications to to two hundred, and then get from two hundred to fifty, and then fifty to ten, and that's who you get in whatever residency or whatever fellowship you are. Um, and I and I got that at the time, and I knew I wasn't going to you know score in the top ten percent. So I had to work on other aspects mm. of my of my career. That when somebody you know turns the paper. Um, they say, this is interesting, you know? And so if you make that first cut, um, then you want to be at the top, maybe not because of your test score, but because of something else that you've done beyond that. And that's what I really, you know, acknowledged. I had to acknowledge that as part of, um, just who I was uh, and then exploit that. And, and I think I did that well, not only through uh, medical school, but into residency 
and that afforded me, you know, into, into fellowship and then fellowship it's, um, you know, I think it's level, the, the playing field is, is level in fellowship. Yeah. Um, and that's where you get to, um, excel and be who you want to be in, in, in nobody remembers, yeah. you know, often where you went to medical school. Yeah. Uh, and at this point in your career, nobody cares. Is that, is that the case or, oh, you made a face that they may, they may care. No, I think that, I think that, um, <clears throat> sometimes patients bring it up. Yeah. So tell me about that. Um, you know, they will, they will re reference perhaps that they had a, that what their last interaction with a DO is. And, you know, I think that's important for me is to hear that story. Hmm. Um, because I can learn something mm -hmm. uh, uh, from that story. It could be a, a, a negative story or it could be a positive story, but at least it gives me some, you know, uh, interaction with them to get them to describe something that is an emotion uh, to them. And that helps kind of in how in build your relationships uh, uh, with those patients and how to communicate best uh, with them. And I think that we all want to kind of feed off of positive, you know, inter interactions mm -hmm. or positive communications, but, Sometimes a negative uh, a communication or a negative emotion, and seeing how they uh, will, they or the or the family members will um, ex express that, I think is important because you may need that, you know, uh, information or you know look back on that experience in the, into the future. I think um, so. It's it's interesting to me because, you know, the. What it all boils down to is the reality that there are good practitioners and there are bad practitioners. And it is not the nature of the degree that somebody has that will make them a good or bad practitioner. And sometimes, though, those degrees give people preconceived notions about what they're going to expect. And we see, you know, you and I haven't talked about this much, but we see, you know, uh, in a very similar way, we'll see patients that you know, at the very beginning think, well, I saw an ophthalmologist for this. And so they must've been correct. And the reality is, is they weren't correct. Um, and, uh, and, and we wind up taking better care of the patient or vice versa. I mean, there's, there's good optometrists, there's bad optometrists, they're good ophthalmologists, bad ophthalmologists. Um, but, uh, kind of getting over those preconceived notions of, of what somebody is expecting because of the nature of your degree and using, like you're saying, using it uh, as a positive, whether it's a negative or a positive coming from the patient, allows you to improve that communication. And it's all in how we handle it. It's all in how we take that, you know, uh, you know, we don't let the we don't let the compliments get us too high, and we don't let the negatives get us too low. We're just there to take good care of the patient, and through those actions and through you know, through that as best care we can provide, then we can change perspective. Yeah, I think that that that's very true. You know, when you come to the compliments and the you know the the criticisms, you know, and I think that's the the way that I know that I know my patients the best is when they can say, "Are you okay?" You know, like what's are you are you doing okay? You know, because that means that they know you. And they're trying to, they, there may have been something you said or, or how you walked into the room or, you know, where you started the conversation, um, because they get to know you over time and, and you have a choice on, you know, how much you let them in, 
right? I mean, my patients, you know, if they ask, they know I have four kids. They know my wife's name. Uh, you know, they what they know what my hobbies are. They may know that I'm, you know, where I'm at right now. Um, but that's my choice, and and others may not may not choose to be that. But but it shows a, a, a mutual level, I think, of respect that uh, that I give. You know, I think that my patients, um, and I would not be offended if they if they said, you know, I'm I was concerned about how you approached this situation, mm. or can you explain to me why you said it that way? Because that's that's what they deserve. Um, you know, and, and I hope I have time to kind of explain to them why, why I did or, um, have time to reflect and come up with an, an answer. And it may be, you know, sometimes, uh, you, you know, each day, I mean, you experience this in a busy clinic, you know, you may, the interaction you may have just had, it's very hard to like take two. Right. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, okay, you're done. Right. You got to forget <laughs> yep. about what just happened uh, from the room before and play it forward as if you nothing happened. And that's, you know, that's that's not human. Yeah. Very, very few, if any, that I know can just call take and move on to the next scene yeah, yeah. Uh, and not take, you know, so and sometimes it may not be, you know, that individual uh, interaction. It may be that something has you know, bled over into the, into the next room. Um, and I think that that's, you know, sometimes important, uh, and something that as I've grown in my profession, you know, is I will call myself on those scenarios where I'll just have to walk away, you know, before going into mm. the next room and just say, look, if I spend three extra minutes, not just jumping to the next room or the next, uh, phone call or the next email is to just level set, you mm. know, and just say, okay, you know, reflect how are you going to, how are you going to, you know, think about it? Uh, where are you going to put it? Mm. Right. Is this a put that you're not going to think about it again, or you're going to try and think about it a little bit more later, but um, you know, but you, you know, at some point you got to move on. Uh, um and then and then walk in walk into that room. And am I perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, and do my patients call me on it? They have. Uh, um, and have and have they not? Yeah, the majority of the time. Um, but acknowledging acknowledging that, um, I think has been helpful. And you know, that's why having colleagues and you know, um, and having mentors and. So do they? Do you actually have somebody right now that you could go to that that has experienced a lot of these cases that you'd be comfortable just calling up and be like, "Man, what do I do here?" Or somebody that's going to be like, "Matt, what are you doing?" Do you have anybody like that right now? Yeah, I think that you know, I get up to every morning to go to work, and one of the biggest joys that I have is that I get to interact with the people that I work with right now uh, in in our lymphoma group. Uh, you know, they're you know, and I pick each one of them for their, um, what I think is their attributes that help me the most. I mean, that sounds selfish, but it also is valuing their time. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's an important thing to think about also is if you always go to the same, the same person with the multitude of problems or concerns, mm -hmm. then that's not, uh, you know, that's not fair to them to be, mm -hmm. to be quite honest. So I, I do have those people and, 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 you know, 
it's a two-way street uh, in many situations too. And I have uh, internal, meaning uh, people that I work with, that I that I go to for topics, and I and and there are um, people outside of you know um, my um, workplace uh, that are in a similar field uh, um, that I that I ask about um, similar topics, and you know sometimes it brings perspective uh, to ask a person that's that's not in your city or uh, sometimes not even in your country mm-hmm. on on how you know if they were in this situation how would they uh, manage or how would they think through uh, a certain um, whether it's a problem or an issue um, and you know it just doesn't need to stop there right I mean in the end you know over time it'll it'll uh, it may take two or three people to help you mold on what you want to uh, how you want to act uh, in that situation but um, I do have those people and and without them I would not be either where I'm at or uh, have the ability to do what I do, and I'm very grateful uh, and appreciative of those individuals. Well, amen. I don't think there's a better way to end it than that. Uh, Matt, thanks again for the trip. My pleasure. Uh, thanks again for coming with us and, and taking the boys for an experience that they they won't forget. And um, and we'll do this again. Sounds good. All right, man. Appreciate it. Yeah.